Thank you for listening to the City Lights podcast. You can visit us on Sundays, 10 a.m. at 4100 20th Street in Greeley. We hope you enjoy the message. We've been in a series called Has God Said? Um, the premise of the series, Has God Said, is that much of what is clearly stated in Scripture and that is understood in Scripture is being questioned in today's society. The Satan said to, um, to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Many times what the enemy of our soul does is he comes to us in the form of a question to sow a seed of doubt. Did God really say that thing to you? Was that prophetic word you got really true? Is the Bible even true, right? Many times there's that seed of doubt that's sown in a form of a question. And so we're trying to tackle some of these within this series. I'll do a quick review and then we'll get into some new content. The first, uh, we're tackling some big ones, by the way, in this series, and we're going to continue to do so. Um, The first one, we asked the question, are there really only two genders? Are there really only two genders? Are gender and sex the same thing? Or is there such thing as a a gender spectrum or gender fluidity? Um, We went after that one. And if you want to hear what I said about it and you missed it, go back and listen to it, okay? The second um, part two, we asked the question, is the nuclear family really God's plan? Do strong traditional families really produce strong societies? Is that really God's best? I will say of that message, I have never, of any message I've ever preached, I've never had so much positive feedback for a message. And so um, if you missed that, please do yourself a favor and go listen to it. Um, Part three, uh, we did this last week. We asked the question, is the Bible really God's word? Is this the infallible word of God? And we're gonna we're gonna use that as our springboard and keep going after that this week. Um, so let me do a quick review of, of some of the scriptures we talked about. Has the Bible said this? Well, according to the Bible, the Bible claims that it is God's word. Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen it says this: All scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. How many know you got to be trained in righteousness? Come on, Hans, you know about this, buddy. Good to see you, by the way. Thanks for coming. Um, And training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God wants you thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God is for you to be trained up in those things through righteousness. Amen? Second Peter uh, 1, 19 through 20, it says this, we also have the prophetic message of, as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the Bible's claim is that it was and that it is the infallible word of God and that it is completely reliable. Is this true? (laughs) That was a good chance for you, okay? (laughs) All right. I cited six pieces of evidence that I want to use and continue to use um, to confirm that indeed the Bible is God's word. Um, last week we talked about the archaeological evidence and historical evidence. I just, probably the tip of the iceberg on those two subjects, the archaeological evidence and the uh, historical evidence. Um, we're also going to talk about the scientific evidence, the manuscript evidence, the wisdom in the, in the Bible that proclaims it to be God's word, and the prophetic evidence. 
Um, by the way, on the prophetic evidence, um, we'll get there probably next week, and hopefully we can tie in some of these other ones. But I believe something prof- significantly prophetic happened this week with the, the treaties that Israel has been signing with the UAE and with Bahrain. I want to show you from Scripture that I believe that those alliances are, are in the Bible. And so we're going to talk about that. It's going to be good stuff, okay? So significant things have happened um, this week um, that relate to Bible prophecy. So this week, um, rather than trying to do the last four of those points, um, I'm actually going to just take a week and hone in on one, and that is the scientific evidence for the Bible. Is the Bible scientifically reliable? All right? Now, I I believe the answer is yes, and I'll show you why. I believe there are many scriptures that have um, scientific um, backing to them. But I will say this. The Bible and science each have their specific lanes. But I do believe there is some overlap. I believe that the Bible should confirm science, and and science should confirm what the scriptures say. Um, So the Bible, it's not a scientific textbook, but it deals with many of life's most important questions. Science describes how the heavens go. The Bible describes how to go to heaven, right? Science describes how you're alive, how, you know, the the biological things that have to happen for you to be alive. Science describes how you're alive. The Bible describes why you're alive, right? It gives you purpose. Science gives you an understanding of the universe. The Bible gives you a purpose for the universe, okay? So um, Martin Luther King Jr., He is quoted as saying this. He says, science investigates, religion interprets. Science gives man knowledge, which is power. Religion gives man wisdom, which is control. Science deals mainly with facts. Religion deals mainly with values. The two are not rivals. They are complementary. They're not rivals, they're complementary. There's a a, a huge, um, in, in the late 18th and 19th century, there's this huge thing that, okay, these two are at war with one another. Not in war with one another, they're complementary. Um, Albert Einstein, um, he says this, without religion, uh, science without religion is lame. Okay? Religion without science is blind. Okay? Now, those two men may not agree on very many things, but they did both agree that science and religion have their place, and they're not at war with one another. They're complementary to one another. Okay? And I believe that is true. So today, I wanna, what I want to do basically from the Bible is I want to highlight four scriptures that point to the fact that this is actually a scientifically reliable book. How many think that's going to be good? Okay. This book has stood the test of time, and you can trust it. It is a reliable source for your everyday life. Okay. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We'll start there, and we'll end up in Revelation 22. So 22 chapters in Revelation. Sometime in the next... You know, I don't know. Weak. I don't know. Because I don't read as fast as most of you. Okay. Um, Genesis 1, 1 through 3. It says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Okay. In the beginning. Um, Why is this a scientifically reliable verse? Why did I point this out? You might be surprised to know that the idea of there even being a beginning was not always universally agreed upon. 
In fact, the consensus in the scientific community before the 1920s was that the universe had always existed, that the universe was preeminent. Um, most scientists, philosophers, and astronomers agreed that the universe had always existed before the 1920s. This was the prevailing thought. In fact, many people ridiculed the Bible for suggesting that the universe, or not suggesting, declaring that the universe had a, a finite beginning, okay? That space, time, and matter had a beginning point. <clears throat> but this is what happened. In 1929, a man named Edwin Hubble, an American astronomer, recognize the name Hubble, proved that the universe is finite, proved that the universe had a beginning point. Point. Okay, Edwin Hubble, looking through his telescope, observed that galaxies were traveling away from us, and, and with respect to one another, were traveling away from one another. In other words, that the universe itself is expanding. The universe is an expansion. And in 1998, it was actually confirmed that not only is the universe expanding, it is accelerating in its expansion. Okay, and so naturally, if you rewind the clock. If you have a clock and you rewind it, inevitably you come back to a point of origin. You have a point of beginning. Now, this is where scientists have come up with the Big Bang Theory and stuff like that. But actually, that idea that there is a finite universe coincides with the Bible that says there is a beginning. Okay? This observation flew in the face of most scientists at that time, including Albert Einstein. Einstein did not like the idea that the, that the universe had a definite, finite beginning point. He believed that the universe had always existed, okay? And so Einstein actually, for himself, went to Hubble um, to look for himself, look through uh, Hubble's telescope and look and observe this for himself. He was like, Edwin, what are you smoking in that pipe? I need to look through this telescope too, okay? And he found out that Edwin Hubble was not smoking some stuff, he was actually observing facts about our universe, okay? And Einstein is quoted as saying this. He says, I now see the necessity of a beginning. So Einstein had to change his thinking um, to catch up to what was being observed. I now see the necessity of a beginning point. <clears throat> so the Bible was right. Can I get a witness? It's a good, good place for a drink of water. Uh, Somebody saw me walking today, and I had like four bottles of water. They're like, oh, man, it's going to be a long sermon, isn't it? <laughs> and I actually don't know how long this is going to be, but my notes are a little longer than normal, and we have a video, so it might be long. So, Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The, the word there, or the phrase in the beginning, in the Hebrew, that is just one word. Okay, that is one word, in the beginning. And I think this is cool. It's not just the first book of the Bible that confirms that the Bible is, coincides with science. It's not just the first chapter. It's not just the first verse. It's the first word of the first verse of the first book of the Bible that coincides with science and says the universe is finite. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and this is just food for thought. The word universe, universe is made up of two words. Uni meaning one, right? Verse meaning a spoken word or phrase. And isn't that exactly what we live in? The universe is a single spoken word or phrase by God. Amen. God said, let there be and there was. God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. Um, we'll pick this apart a little bit more. Genesis 1.1. It also, if you, if you look at the Hebrew, 
Um, the second word of the Bible is God. So in the Hebrew, the second word of the Bible is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God here is the word Elohim. And it, the, it is in the plural. The word Elohim is in the plural. In some places in scripture, Elohim is actually interpreted gods. Okay, now we know there's not many gods. There's one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, right? But the implication immediately from the first verse of the Bible is that, there, that God is a trinity. That there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, in fact, you'll see later on in this chapter, if you, if you read that chapter, um, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 120, uh, Genesis one twenty six says, let us make mankind in our image, right? God is reasoning among himself, the council of heaven, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. Okay, this is where the doctrine of the Trinity was born and it's, and it's confirmed throughout scripture. But what I want to point out is, Psalms chapter 19, verse 1, it says this, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. I don't know about you, but how many this summer you, you went camping and you got away from this, the city, the city lights, no, well, <laughs> city lights, church. You got away from the lights in cities. And, and I guess you'd been away from this church too, geographically speaking. But you're out under the stars and you can just, you can see them. There's no, there's no ambient light to interfere with that. Isn't that amazing to just see the beauty and the glory of God? The heavens declare the glory of God. I, I was thinking about this this morning. And I wonder if this is one of the reasons why it appears that people who live in rural areas are more theistic. They believe in God and, and less um, atheist. Um, I wonder if that is because they have more of a connection to the nature and the creation of God, which declares the glory of God. But anyway, um, <clears throat> the Trinity. Genesis 1.1 says this. In the beginning, notice beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning speaks of time. The, the construct of time as we know it happened at that moment. In the beginning time, God created the heavens, which speaks of space, and earth and the planets speaks of matter. So time, space, and matter are all, time, space, and matter are all spoken of in the very first verse of the Bible. But this is what I think is awesome, that there's a triune creation, and the creation itself points back to the, to the creator. Creation is a tri, there's a triune creation pointing back to God. But watch this. Within the trinity of the creation, there's a trinity of trinities within the creation, okay? Okay, you're with me? Hop on the train. It's going to go fast. Okay, why is this? Well, time is made up of three things. Time is past, present, future. Space is made up of three parts, length, width, and height. Matter has three parts, protons, neutrons, electrons, existing in three states, solid, liquid, and gas. Okay? Even you, you're created in God's likeness and image. You are three parts. You have body, soul, spirit, spirit, soul, body. Okay? Think about this. If, if, and if you think about us being created in God's image, who's, if, of the Godhead, who's, who's the body? Well, the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh. He's the body. Who's the, who's the mind, will, and emotions? The soul. The father has a will. He has a plan. He has a purpose, right? He's the origin of all things. And then, of course, the spirit that speaks for itself. That one's easy, right? Okay, you are a triune being. The creation itself points back to the, to the triune God, okay? What is God doing in all this? He's testifying of himself. 
He's testifying of himself saying, when I create something, I create it in a way that points back to me the triune God, okay? The preeminent one, the one that existed before the construct of time even began. Ecclesiastes chapter four, ver, uh, four says this, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Okay, we know that um, triangles are the strongest and most stable shape, right? A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I love to use that, that verse when I do weddings. Because in a wedding, when two people get married, it's not just a contractual agreement between two people, like signing a legal document. It's not just two people making agreements. It's God in the middle. Biblical covenants are different. It's a threefold cord with God in the middle of it. Amen? And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's why you want a marriage. Make your vows not just to each other, but you make your vows before God, to God, and most importantly, with God. Amen? Okay. So, Genesis, from Genesis 1.1, it declares that the Bible is scientifically reliable and accurate. Okay, so that was just one verse. All right, let's look at another verse. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21 through 22, it says this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Okay, we'll get back to the circle in a minute. But just remember I talked about universal expansion, and not only is the universe expanding, but it's accelerating in its expansion. I think that verse speaks to that. He's stretching out the heavens, and it's accelerating in that expansion. But it says here, he's seated above the circle of the earth. Now, how many know the earth is round? Actually, I, that's not really highly agreed upon anymore. It used to be very agreed upon. <laughs> but the earth is round. The Hebrew word here, um, um, earth, or circle, can be used to talk about two-dimensional objects and the three-dimensional objects. So many have argued that a better uh, translation for that would, would actually be sphere that he's seated above the sphere of the earth. And regardless of what direction you look at a sphere, it is circular in nature, right? Um, in fact, any object, any object that's long, uh, 600 kilometers or, or larger in diameter will pull itself into a sphere. Um, the, the smallest um, spherical object in our, in, our, um, in our solar system, I think it's um, one of the moons of Saturn, it's 400 kilometers wide, but because it's made of ice and different more malleable things, it's been able to pull itself into a sphere. Well, any, no matter what it's made out of, anything uh, that's wider than 600 kilometers, will, it's, its own gravity will pull itself into a sphere. Okay. Now listen, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah that we just read out of, was written in 700 B.C. Okay, 700 B.C. It was not officially confirmed that the earth was round until Magellan circumnavigated the earth in 521 AD. Okay. Others had theorized that it is that way. And that goes back. The theories go back a while. Others had theorized it, but Magellan actually demonstrated it by sailing around the earth. So again, the Bible preceded science here by 2,200 years. Okay. It was declared in the Bible 2,200 years before it happened. How many know that's a pretty long time? Okay. The book of Genesis was recorded in the year uh, 1445. 
BC, and the discovery of the universe being finite happened in 1929, which means here that the biblical text preceded science by 3,374 years. Crazy. Okay, let's read two more scriptures. Job chapter 26, verse 7, it says this. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. He suspends the earth over nothing. Do you realize in Job's day, the the prevailing school of thought of what the foundation of the earth must be on something? I mean, we feel this force of gravity, but yeah, it's not falling. It must be suspended by something. The prevailing thought, like in Greek mythology, you know, you have Atlas holding up the world, right? they believed it had to be held up by something. Hindu mythology, you have earth on elephants, which are on a turtle, and the turtle's on something else, and it goes, right? Different religions and different uh, mythologies of the world always portray the earth as resting upon something, but Job, one of the oldest books of the Bible, if not the oldest book in the Bible, declares he suspends the earth on nothing. Sir Isaac Newton, the mathematician and physicist who came up with his theory of gravity, he came up with that theory in 1689, which means that um, Job's understanding of the earth being suspended on nothing, on gravity, precedes Newton by over 3,000 years. Okay? That's pretty interesting. Now, we know that gravity isn't nothing. It's actually a curvature in space-time, which Einstein didn't um, prove till later on. But how would you describe curvature in space-time, you know, if you're Job? It's like, you know... <laughs> But he suspends the earth on nothing. The, gra- the gravitational pull of the sun keeps us going around it. And, and otherwise, we'd fly off in one direction. Okay? But on that note, uh, gravity is still not fully understood to this day by scientists. They, they still don't fully have their minds around gravity. The Newton's um, uh, equation stuff, de- they, they can demonstrate gravity very well, but we still don't have a full understanding of like, why gravity is the way it is. They still don't fully understand that. Okay, so listen, this book, again, has stood the test of time. There's amazing things in here that you would not expect to find from ancient people who did not have knowledge of modern science, okay? All right, I'll give you one more verse, and we'll talk about this. Um, When scientists, astronomers, look into distant galaxies, one thing that they... Um, observe is that there's only about 15% of the amount of um, matter that should be able to hold that galaxy together. In other words, when we observe galaxies, we, we think they should be flying apart because there's not enough mass to hold them together. And this happens over and over and over. They just, they're looking out and they're like, we don't understand how these galaxies are even held together. There's not enough matter. Okay. There's only about 15% of what should be there. So what scientists have done is they have inferred the existence of dark matter, okay? Um, Dark matter is a hypothetical form of matter um, thought to account for approximately 85% of the matter of the universe, okay? Um, There's no way other than detecting the effect of dark matter, there's no other way to detect it. They have no other way. It doesn't interact with any of the electromagnetic spectrum, so there's no way to observe it other than the fact that galaxies are being held together and they don't know why. It's pretty crazy, which is also true of molecules and atoms in general, that we don't really understand how they don't just fly apart and how they came into existence in the first place. I love this. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, it says this. The sun is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If, if God ceased to exist or his word ceased to exist, matter itself would dissolve and galaxies would fly apart. It is sustained by the power of his word that goes back to let there be and there was. Amen. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Watch this. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Okay? The reason why it exists, the reason why we're not flying apart is it's sustained by the power of God's word. God spoke the universe into existence. He upholds it by the power of his word. Amen? Okay. There's a lot more there, which we don't have time to get into. But if you're taking notes, um, write these down. Um, you can also find scriptures that talk about the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, Psalms 102, verses 25 through 27, which was later confirmed in the year 1850. So again, the Bible precedes science by many, many, many years. Uh, Job 38:16 tells us that there are springs in the sea. That was not known until 1913. Isn't that crazy? That there are actually springs under the water in the sea? That was not confirmed until 1913. Job and Ecclesiastes talk about the hydrologic cycle of evaporation, rain, and that, that whole cycle. Job and Ecclesiastes talk about that. Job, there's a scripture in Job that talks about that air itself has weight. Many people thought air to be this weightless thing, but we know that the reason why we actually have atmospheric pressure right now is because air has weight, and gravity is pushing down, and, and which is really important, by the way, that we have atmospheric pressure, you would, you would kind of, well, our blood would boil without it. So it's kind of important. Okay. But, so there's a few things if you want to go check those out on your own. And it goes really deep if you want to get into it. In my opinion, though, one of the greatest arguments for God is the fact that our universe seems to be fine-tuned for life. Um, I'm going to play a video in a minute about the fine-tuning of our universe but the earth itself is fine-tuned for life. If we were just a few, um, a few degrees, the, the tilt of the earth, the composition of the earth, of, the, of our atmosphere, if we were closer to the sun or further away, life wouldn't be possible. There are so many, there are dozens and dozens of factors that make it possible for you and me to live here. Without those very narrow parameters, life could not exist here on earth. Um, but the universe itself is fine-tuned, and scientists, this is undeniable truth. Scientists, atheist scientists, have, have, to, have to accept this as truth, that the universe is absolutely fine-tuned for life to be present. And so I want to play a video about this, so go ahead and roll that. From galaxies and stars, down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. 
scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant, a change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would again be life prohibiting. Or another example of fine tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these and many other numbers have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be life-permitting. The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a life-prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a life-permitting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine-tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So, in an effort to keep this option alive, some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach, known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that, odds are, 
life-permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, measured, or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine-tuning. Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine-tuning. Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, the best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be it was designed that way. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect monkeyed with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. So that is only one example of fine-tuning. There are many, many other things that have been fine-tuned. I don't have time to get into biology and those kind of things. But if you're interested in this topic, I do want to point you to two resources. Uh, there's a man by the name of Dr. Stephen Meyer. He wrote two books. One is called Signature in the Cell. And it just talks about DNA and the evidence for intelligent design and DNA. One thing Darwin did not understand when he wrote his, his theories about evolution is how intricate the genetic code is, is like code. It's like computer code. One thing he could not have understood was our, we did not have an understanding of, of genes at that time, which are crazy complex. Okay, another book that he wrote is called Darwin's Doubt. And um, the explosive origin of animal life and the case for intelligent design. So um, I, he's, uh, he is a believer, but he doesn't approach, he doesn't necessarily approach his, um, his uh, books from a standpoint of the Bible. He approaches them from a scientific standpoint that the best explanation for what we see and what we have here is that there is a designer involved, okay? Um, that that is the most plausible explanation for why we're here. This is, that's just purely a statistical scientific look at the matter, okay? So check that out, and uh, there's a lot more there. But I'll conclude with this. I'll conclude with this. Science describes how you're alive. The Bible describes why you're alive. The question for us boils down to purpose. Why did God master engineer this universe and this world? I'm going, to read, I'm going to read four scriptures, and then we'll close here. Isaiah 45, verse 18, it says this. 
For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. Okay? I am the Lord. There is no other. He formed this world to be inhabited by you and me. Jesus said this in John 17, 24. He's praying. He said, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Jesus wants you with him. And to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me, watch this, before the creation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, it says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Okay, according to his pleasure and will, before the creation of the world, he chose us in him. Titus 1, 1 through 3, it says this, Paul, a servant, of, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at this appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. Amen? God chose us in him before the creation of the world. He, he made a promise before the beginning of time. I don't know how that worked out. Like God's, I promise, that, I promise you that this is going to work out, Jesus. I don't know. But he chose us in him before time began. He predestined us to be with him. One thing that Einstein did not believe in. Another thing he didn't believe in, which I believe is true, he did not believe in a personal God. I believe the scheme behind all of this is that God wants to know you. He wants to love you. He wants to walk with you. He has a plan, purpose, and destiny for you. Okay, He wants to do life with you. God is crazy about people. This is, this is his obsession to make all this, like this crazy... All these things have to be perfectly aligned, simply, I believe, so that he would know you and me and walk with us. Amen? Why else would the Son of God come to this world and die on the cross for us? If you're here in this place and you've never placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, I hope that I've, number one, given you some reason to do that. But number two, and more importantly, I hope that the Holy Spirit has been moving upon your heart during this service. I can say you know, important things, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit who draws you to him. And so that's my prayer this morning is that you want to place your faith and trust in Jesus. You want to commit your life to him, that you would do that. You will leave this place knowing that you've begun a relationship with the living God. You will leave this place knowing <clears throat> that you never have to go to hell <clears throat> and that he will never judge you for your sins because they were judged on the cross with Jesus. Amen. So if that's you, you want to place your faith and trust in Jesus? Let me just say it like this. It's very simple. It's not about you cleaning yourself up, doing good works, trying harder to be a good person. God knew that we weren't good and that we couldn't self-rescue from this problem. This is why he sent Jesus to this earth. Jesus came and died on the cross for your sin, my sin, and the sins of the world. And when we place our faith and trust in him, he gives us the gift that we can never earn, the gift that we can never deserve is the gift of a salvation, the gift of a restored relationship with him. <clears throat> if that makes sense to you and you want to know God, you want to have a personal relationship with him, I want to pray for you. I don't need to bring anyone up front this morning, but this morning I do want to know who I am praying for. 
So right where you're at, if you would do something bold and just say, yeah, that's me. I want to place my faith and trust in Jesus. Would you do something for me? And right where you're at, just say, and this crowd of people say, yeah, that's me. I want to be bold. I want to place my faith and trust in Jesus. How many would say, that's me? Praise God. Thank you. Thank you. How many more? How many more would say, that's me? He's so good. He loves you so much. You're not here by accident today. This universe is an accident. You're not here by accident. He loves you so much. He has a plan for you. Praise God. You guys can put your hands down. I want to pray for those that raise their hands. If the web stream's up, is the web stream up? It is? Praise God. If you're watching online and you want to place your faith and trust in Jesus, I want to pray for you as well. Repeat this prayer after me. Mean it with all of your heart. And God's going to do something amazing and something new. Repeat this prayer after me, everyone. Lord Jesus. I believe you are the son of God. Thank you for coming to this world. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Today I place my faith and trust in you. Come into my heart. Be my Lord. Be my God. Help me to follow you. Give me your spirit. Walk with me for the rest of my life and all of eternity. I trust you today. Thank you for loving me from the foundation of the world. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Come on, put your hands together, guys. He's so good, you guys. He's so good. Like, we serve an amazing God. He's not the cruel taskmaster. Like, he loves us. He has a plan for our life. Come on. Like, life with God is so exciting. Why would you want to live any other way? Amen? Those of you that made that decision to place your faith and trust in Jesus, um, if you would do something for me, we'll have some prayer counselors down here after the service. If you would just come and just say, hey, I made that choice today. And, and we want to pray with you a little bit more, encourage you, get you started on the right foot. If you're watching online and you prayed that prayer, maybe put that in the comments, but also go to citylights.church. There's a, there's a box there that says, it's a connect card. Just indicate on there, click on that connect card, indicate that you've made a decision for Jesus. We will follow up with you because we want to get you started in the right direction. Amen? All right. Well, we love you guys. Have a great week. Thanks again for tuning into the City Lights podcast. We appreciate your support and we'd love to fellowship with you. You can visit us on Sundays, 10 a.m. at 4100 20th Street in Greeley. Be sure to check out our website at citylights.church where you can submit prayer requests, receive info on special events, and find our social media links. We're glad you could join us and we hope you have a blessed week.